tropical food and agriculture here in the state of Maine, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. My name is C.J. Walk. I am Ofka's organic orchardist and librarian, and I'm your host for today's show. Common Ground Radio is a monthly show airing on the first Friday of every month at 10 a.m. here on WERU. We are open to suggestions on future topics and guests for the show, so please feel free to contact us through our website, www.mofka.org. I'd like our listeners to be aware that this is a pre-recorded show, so we are not taking phone calls at this time. The topic for today's show is permaculture, which we will explore as a creative approach to design systems that utilizes certain principles and techniques to build adaptive resilience in human habitats and healthy ecosystems. It is modeled on natural ecosystem patterns and addresses issues of food production and water, shelter and energy, community, culture, and health. The origin of the word permaculture comes from the combination or contraction of the words permanent and agriculture and was coined by Bill Mollison and David Holmgren in the late 1970s. Currently, permaculture is also used to bring together the concepts of permanent and culture because of the essential role that society and culture play in creating healthy human habitats and healthy ecosystems. So joining us today in the studio is Jesse Watson, who is the principal designer for Midcoast Permaculture based in Rockland, Maine. Jesse is also the primary organizer for the Midcoast Permaculture Network, which hosts workshops, meetups, and potlucks for folks interested in permaculture in the region. Jesse, thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. Also joining us on the phone today is Lisa Fernandez, who is the director of the Resilience Hub based in Portland, Maine. Lisa is a trained facilitator and permaculture designer, and she organizes the Portland, Maine Permaculture Group, which has over 1,500 members and offers skill shares, workshops, and permablitzes, among many other activities. Thank you for joining us today, Lisa. My pleasure. Good to have you both here. So what I'd like to do is, after that brief intro for our guest, is really ask each of you um, what first got you interested in permaculture and how it has become a central part of your lives and the daily work um, that you do. So Lisa, would you like to kind of lead in with that first? Sure. Um, I would say that I grew up uh, gardening, growing food in my family, um, and while I was in my early 20s and doing a little bit of traveling around, heard of the term permaculture um, overseas, and it really made sense for me, which is a common reaction. People sort of start learning about it and say, that just makes sense. It's sort of applied common sense. And came back home and lived out in the Pacific Northwest for a while and continued to pursue on my own learning about permaculture and um, returned to my native New England and did a lot of different things for work, but about eight years ago, nine years ago now, um, really had a, a kind of um, watershed moment of realizing that I wanted to work really in a dedicated way with permaculture as a design practice, really because I was having a, a growing awareness uh, around issues of peak oil and climate change and, and those sorts of things. And um, in that discussion, there was a lot of doom and gloom and collapse conversation, which, you know, we can't turn our eyes away from the fact that there are pretty big, difficult changes happening and will continue to happen. 
But I felt like permaculture offered another way of choosing to be within that bigger conversation of, of big changes happening in the world. So, so yeah, I came came to came back to Maine, and um, from that conference that I was hearing a lot about peak oil and, and climate change and so forth, and um, started a group around my dining room table, and uh, and and really just dedicated myself to, to what we wanted to learn about ourselves. And it grew from there. So now we're, we're actually just over 1,700 members in our permaculture group here and averaging something like 50 or 60 events per year to really democratize permaculture as a design process and, and really create access to the tools that permaculture has. So, so yeah, since '05, I'd say I've been really quite dedicated to to this pathway. Great, great. Thank you, Lisa. Uh, and Jesse, I'd like to ask you kind of the same, what first got you interested in permaculture and how it's become a central part of your daily life. Okay. For me, I first heard about permaculture in the late 90s. Um, I was in Seattle in 1999 for the WTO protests. And... And I think it was in that um, the real kind of ferment, you know, the cross-pollination amongst all of the, the different movements that really converged in Seattle at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that was the first place that I, that I heard about just the word permaculture. And I took it under advisement and came back to it a lot later. The WTO was sort of my, you know, a real radicalizing experience for me. <clears throat> and... Um, I became involved in um, social justice movements um, to and the focus of a lot of those social justice and, and you know radical environmental movements um, the, the focus was to sort of fight uh, against the things that you don't want to see in the world mm-hmm. and so eventually I was transplanted to Maine my wife is from Maine um, and in Maine, I, I, I got involved with the radical environmental movement here for a lot of years. And um, I, ha- I experienced a similar sort of watershed moment just where my uh, activities, how I wanted to uh, manifest change in the world, um, you know, I sort of reached this point where fighting against the bad guys wasn't quite working out for me. And, um, you know, so I started to look into permaculture and um, took a design course, and and that really opened my eyes up to sort of the positive way forward. Because uh, permaculture, like Lisa said, it it's not that you know permaculture doesn't isn't blind to the challenges that we face in the world. It looks at these challenges full in the face. Um, and, and takes a different kind of uh, response um, to these challenges. So, so that was when I uh, I took the course. It you know my, my a new pathway opened up for me um, in about 2010. Uh, I started doing um, landscape design work for people, and um, and so I, I I developed a portfolio. And in 2012, I began. Um, co-teaching some courses with Lisa. And uh, this year, uh, through Midcoast Permaculture, we're looking to expand some of our services and begin doing some uh, landscape installation work for for our clients. 
mm-hmm. and um, developing a demonstration site at my own one acre, uh, my own one acre um, homestead in Rockland, and just trying to um, trying to manif- trying to manifest the thing too. You know, try to work out some of the techniques. You know, with with using permaculture design in the landscape, and then tinkering with it. It's kind of a tinkering kind of a thing. It's an it's an okay. applied thing. You know. Okay. Okay. Well, what I find interesting both from from both of your introductions is the um, kind of the aspect of coming maybe from the doom and gloom side first, and then and feeling challenges there, but really recognizing the need to kind of mobilize positive change, and how permaculture and um, permaculture as kind of a design system or philosophy or a view of the world uh, has has helped you both kind of move in that direction, yeah. it seems. Mm-hmm. Um, and so within that, I'd really like to discuss more about kind of the design system piece, um, because I know we can talk about uh, permaculture in the more abstract worldview um, and kind of global movement issues, but also thinking more along the lines of a holistic di- design approach that brings together kind of these gardening practices and techniques to really work it all together. Um, but really, kind of when I think about the design piece, the one of the first steps, it seems, is to really focus on goals. So I was wondering, Lisa, if you could kind of uh, address that, that initial stage maybe of, of thinking about the, the goals for your land, your landscape, mm-hmm. and for your life when, you, when people think about uh, permaculture design. Right, right. Um, goal setting is a really big part of, I think, any design process. And it can sometimes be difficult uh, on the one hand because sometimes culturally we haven't gained a comfort level with goal setting as a part of the way we do things Um, and articulating goals with greater or lesser degrees of specificity, you know, quantifying things, timescaling things. Those are all kind of arts and sciences and, and, and in fairness, it can be throwing darts on the best of days mm-hmm. uh, you know but but there's an old saying that you know if you can't guarantee destination go for direction and goals are kind of like that at least it's pointing you in the right direction and oftentimes when we do design with a client you know residential design farm design school design whatever there's a process by which goals need to be articulated and Sometimes that that comes out at first, such as I want to grow more food, or mm-hmm. I want my farm to be more profitable, or I want to get off fossil fuels, or some other tangible outcome of the design process of, of using permaculture. And I think that's great. Sometimes what we talk about in the permaculture course um, that Jesse and I do, we'll, we'll, we'll ask students to dig a little deeper underneath the stated goals to really get at people's motivations. So why do you want to grow more food? Why do you want to get off fossil fuels? And, you know, one person might say, uh, well, you know, I, I have some financial challenges and I want to be able to feed my kids healthy, delicious, nutritious, organic food. So I really want to grow more of my own food for that reason. Someone else might say, I want to grow more food because, you know, zombie apocalypse is clearly coming and, <laughs> um, you know, you, you, you want to be ready for that. 
Um, so, but, but those two motivations underneath the goals, and this is very conversational, right? It's mm-hmm. not just a unilateral statement. But those, those conversations and motivations underneath are really important sets of design data uh, because how you go about creating a roadmap or a design um, really has to do with not just stated goals, but motivations and a whole bunch of other um, issues that get surfaced in the design process. And that's probably true for a lot of design disciplines uh, that, that are really clear about goals articulation. A um, couple of quick last things I'll say about this and, and hand it back over to you guys, but um it's really important that as many stakeholders as possible uh, are involved in articulating the goals. So when that's a household, that can be fairly simple. You know, who are the primary folks living in the household? You know, whether that's a couple of partners or extended family or children or, you know, everyone needs to be part of the conversation to, to set direction. This gets even more important and uh commensurately more complicated when we're talking about a multi-stakeholder environment like a school or mm-hmm. a church or an organization. It's, it's perhaps even more important because if the right people are not involved from the outset, I think that you, you measurably reduce the chance of creating a successful design and implementing a design that people will want to be vested in and help make happen. So I just want to articulate that. And then all of this is based on permaculture ethics and principles, which I won't go into, but, you know, really grounded. The whole design process gets grounded in those ethics and principles before we even jump in. Yes, and, and, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the ethics and principles um, yeah. as we move through the show. But I think one of the, the interesting pieces uh, or an interesting piece is really in that goal-setting involving all the different stakeholders and being a real inclusive process, which to me kind of um, resembles or replicates that interconnectedness within an ecosystem that we're looking to really incorporate uh, in those, in those design systems. So uh, I wanted Jesse to give you a chance in terms of um, goal setting and approaches to goals when you work with people or in, in your own uh, demonstration site are there certain things you're looking to do when you set goals? Are you trying to really tease out from people what it is behind behind the, the methods or what the end result is that they're looking for and really think about, well, why are we doing this? Yeah, yeah, because a lot of – oftentimes I find in, in my work some folks get almost elements in a landscape confused with goals. It's like, okay, so what are some of your goals in the landscape? Oh, well, I really would like an orchard, you mm-hmm. know, or I really want a, you know, a, a patio or sauna or something. It's like, okay, well, so so part of part of the work is is to help clients tease apart, you know, what is what is an element, what's an objective, what's a strategy and and what is goal, you know, and and listening between the lines of of the client when when we're going through the interview process to, you know, listening between the lines to to listen in on what are some of their motivations, like Lisa was saying. What's the what's the what's motivating the 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 client to be thinking about permaculture, right? Mm-hmm. Because permaculture is a, is a is a very broad uh, it's it's a a broad topic, you know. I mean, broadly speaking, you know, I might 
I might introduce it as ecosystem design, okay, mm-hmm. with the caveat that, that it's ecosystem design both in a biological sense and in an economic sense because the system is going to require management. So that's the economic activity of, of, of the people involved. And like Lisa was saying, if if the stakeholder, all the people involved in a residential project, it's very straightforward. Okay, mm-hmm. it's 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 the people who are living in the household. The they can make decisions together quite in a, in a streamlined fashion. It can be quite easy um, to 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 get everybody on board to really be clear about their goals. Okay, you want to grow food. Got it. Now, why do you want to grow food? Or what do you you know you want to grow food? What does that mean? Okay, does mm-hmm. uh, what kind of food do you like to eat? Okay. Do you know how to grow it? Do you know how to do you know how to grow it? Um, tend it, harvest it, process it, and store it. Yes. You know. So so growing food is you know it it, it sounds fairly straightforward, but you, you dig into it a little bit, it can get quite complicated, and then it can inform the relative placement of other elements within that system. Okay. So you wouldn't nec- you know you want to grow food. Okay. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I want to grow food, but I want to put it back over there behind the lawn and behind the volleyball court and whatever, where the deer can eat it and where I'm not ever going to tend it because I never get over to it. Okay. Okay. So, so <laughs> growing food is one thing, but part of the, the, the power of permaculture design is this concept of relative placement of elements. So we wouldn't, if you're going to have an annual garden bed that's going to require daily maintenance, for example, you're not going to put it out in the back 20 mm-hmm. where you're never going to get to it. You might, the best design strategy especially if you're a new gardener and you, and you need to tend the plants on a daily basis, put it between the car park and the back door that you use so mm-hmm. that you are forced just by the relative placement of this thing in the landscape, you're forced to tend the plants in a, in a more uh, routine fashion. So, um, but, but, it, but like Lisa said, Lisa said, setting goals is really the, 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 the first order of business uh, because it sets the direction. It's it's the foundation upon which we build the rest of the system. You know, mm-hmm. per- permaculture is is a design system that's based on ethics and principles. It's not based on formula and cookie cutter strategies. So every system is going to be unique, and the reason each system is going to be unique is because it's 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 custom tailored to the design goals that are articulated by the client, and and that's part of what we do as designers is help the clients articulate their goals in a clear fashion so that so that as we move forward with the development of the project it has the most chances of success because it's in alignment with the motivations and and, and values especially like lisa said in a multi-stakeholder environment you know moving forward in order for the system to be built and properly maintained through time because we're talking about ecosystems. We're talking about perennial systems. They're going to persist for generations, hopefully. Mm-hmm. And in a multi-stakeholder environment, that long-term maintenance is sort of the, the, the critical piece. And, and if you don't have buy-in with all the stakeholders from the beginning, that's when the, the the thing can get neglected, and 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 then um, it, it wouldn't have the as as high a chance of success as it would had the initial goal setting uh, process been more robust, involving all of the people who need to be there. Yeah. Mm. Can okay. I can I add something to that too? Sure. Okay. Go ahead, Lisa. Um, 
and it's come up a little bit already in what you guys have alluded to, and it's it's sort of an underpinning of the way we really approach permaculture, I think, in our region here, uh, this northeast region of, of permaculture practitioners. And it's true from, from being a part of the place where you live, developing relationship to place, doing meaningful design, um, and, and setting goals, but essentially what we're talking about is the creation of a participatory ecology in which, you know, humans are participants in the system. Um, you know, whether, whether that's about growing food, a combination of annual and perennial food, or, you know, designing our energy needs or our shelter needs or our other needs, but it's really saying, how do we design ecological systems within which we happen to also be participants? It really actively uh, sort of allows us to move forward on something that a lot of us talk about, which is the fact that there really isn't a separation between humans and nature. And I hear this articulated by a lot of people in different ways. You know, we are part of nature. We are part of the system. And if that is a is a philosophy or, or a worldview that people subscribe to, um, I would say that permaculture is one of the the toolkits for actively manifesting that reality that 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 creates systems within which we are participants. And um, and even though Jesse and I do design for other people, a huge part of what we do and a lot of our colleagues in the permaculture world do is about um, also creating the conditions by which people do not need us as designers, but they see the world through through this lens of actively manifesting a participatory ecology of which they are a part, in which they are embedded. So, so I think I really want to be clear that, you know, we, we do permaculture in the world, we do design work, we do teaching, whatever, but Honestly, we're a big part of why we're in it, and Jesse and I have talked about this, is because we believe that permaculture's kind of marginalized itself for a few years, maybe a few decades, and you know, you sort of had to go into the permaculture sandbox to play with their toys, and it was a little bit clicky or whatever. And honestly, we don't have time for that sort of scarcity thinking. And so what we're trying to do with this, and I know we're going to dig more into the nuts and bolts of it, but just to set it up a little bit more, is, you know, we, we have to take those, those toys and those good skills that are in the permaculture sandbox and, and kind of like throw them all over the place where everyone can get at them. And this isn't like a, a, a held or protected approach. This is a let's make it available for everyone to use. And, and, and whoever wants to pick up this set of tools should be able to do so and, and create these participatory ecologies that help us feed and clothe and warm ourselves and have access to clean water and fresh air and, and all of those pieces that we're striving to achieve. Yes, yes. Um... Thank you, Lisa. I want to take a minute to just to step back for a second and remind our listeners that you are tuned in to WERU, and this is Common Ground Radio, an hour of food and farming discussions, where this week we are talking about permaculture as a design system and creative approach to building resiliency. And joining me today are Jesse Watson from Midcoast Permaculture and the Midcoast Permaculture Network, as well as Lisa Fernandez, who was on the phone and she is director of the Resilience Hub and organizer of the Portland, Maine Permaculture Show. I'd also like to remind our listeners that this is a pre-recorded show, so we are not taking phone calls at this time. 
Um, Lisa, I'd like to come back just briefly to the, the comments you just made about um, that participatory uh, ecology there. And I think it's something that we hear a lot in the local food movement about the disconnection people have between food and where food comes from. Um, so I think it's all kind of rooted, seems to be rooted in this ecological view. Mm. And when we've discussed permaculture before and, and read about it, it really is what you mentioned before, and I'd like to touch on a bit now, is that it's really rooted in this ethical system. And we're thinking about the ethics of care of the earth and care of the people and uh, a fair share as well. So, Lisa, would you like to touch on um, kind of that that basis rooted in the ethics? Because I can see how we're talking about goals, but it's really kind of held together by this ethical approach to help figure mm. out the direction to achieve those goals. Yeah, I think um, I think one of the things that makes permaculture as a design method unique is that it is based in a system of ethics and principles, not in sort of a prescriptive moral way, although you certainly could, could go there with it if you want to. But the core design ethics are earth care, um, you know, care of the earth and, and all of its parts. And that's in a, in a figurative sense, but it's also quite literal. You know, if you only have the ability to steward a tiny backyard or a postage, postage stamp of a yard on, um, in an urban setting or a container but on your porch with soil in it, like quite literally, that's the earth that you can steward. And then, then we need to, to do that. Um, people care is the second ethic. I would argue that's also figurative and literal. You know, we need mm-hmm. to adopt, adopt practices that are, you know, caring for people and especially not causing damage to people near or far but very specifically, starting with the self, we need to be able to practice self-care and then care of the people in relationships most close to us and then sort of work out in concentric circles. Uh, I think particularly in the, maybe in the food movement or agriculture areas or some of the other similar areas, um, I hear a lot about burnout and how hard it is to practice self-care, and I I totally empathize with that. But honestly, if we're not caring for our own selves, we're not going to be of service to others um, as effectively as we could. So so it's earth care, people care. The third ethic uh, is sometimes called fair share, uh, or I've heard it also called future care, which speaks to the fact that, you know, any outputs or surpluses of the system should really be returned to the benefit of the system, you know, should really be returned toward earth care and people care. Um, You know, if you think about the native ecosystem of northern New England, you know, a forest ecosystem, there's no such thing as waste in that system. Every output is a valuable input uh, somewhere else in that system to maintain health and to actually sustain the thing over short and long-term periods of time. So, so earth care, people care, and fair share are sort of these foundational ethics from which, you know, a whole little card deck of, of design principles emerge, and then from there, strategies and techniques. But, but whatever we do with permaculture design, we're always needing to check ourselves against 
you know, earth care, people care, and fair share at the most fundamental level. And, and you know, we're imperfect. We're not always going to get it exactly right. And we're still learning from the wisdom of ecosystems. Um, you know, our the ability of the human brain to even comprehend the wisdom and complexity of ecosystems is, is obviously a big open question, but um, that doesn't mean we should not try and I think earth care, people care, and fair share are, are one of the foundational pieces that allow us to move in that direction. Okay. Okay. And the, the um, fair share, future care ethic uh, seems kind of interesting in a way. It's tied to a sustainability piece. And um, Jesse, I wanted to ask you in terms of, Lisa just mentioned kind of every output is an input and things are cycled and thinking kind of long-term you mentioned things that are going to be there perennial for generations and generations. Kind of some of those within those ethics, that sustainability piece, and maybe some kind of keys or tools you would look for in helping someone design uh, their their home system or farm system that kind of looks at cycling those nutrients and um, really focusing on the long-term sustainability and true sustainability where it doesn't mean you have to go out and find all these inputs at the hardware store or nursery center and bring them into your landscape. Um, but some approaches to really thinking about building sustainability in that plan. Yeah. Um, so sustainability is an interesting concept. It, it, it um, I mean, I don't think of, you know, okay, you said true sustainability. I, I, I guess a, a word that I prefer is regenerative. So I, I think of permaculture as, as a, a design system whereby we can regenerate health of ecosystems, health of loki, local um, human communities, uh, health of uh, a lo- localized ecological culture. Um, and, and in regenerating the health of ecosystems and regenerating the health of our own selves and, and, and the health of our kin and community, um, then, then that gets into to this, this concept of, of cycling surplus back into the first two ethics and, um, and, and, and being able to, to care for the future, you know, down through multiple generations, okay, getting back to the concept of caring for the next seven generations. So um, in Building a sustainable system or, 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 or a regenerative system, I guess how I think of it, Lisa mentioned peak oil, right? So where we're at, and, and that's basically the concept that you know fossil fuels is a, is a limited resource on the planet, mm-hmm. and um, we live on a finite planet. We're beginning to bump up against some of the limits and uh, of of these resources. So the concept of peak oil is, is not that we're running out, but we've hit the peak of production and we're going into terminal decline now. So fossil fuel is 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 a really important energy source, extremely energy dense. You can do a lot of work with it. Um, in 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 the construction of a sustainable or a regenerative system, I think of it as the wise use of what resources we have available to us today. We're industrial. I mean, here in the U.S., we're it's an industrial civilization. We have mm-hmm. industrial technology at our disposal. We can we can do things like move vast amounts of earth relatively cheaply, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you have two guys and three pieces of equipment. You know, you can move mountains. <laughs> yeah. Okay, try doing that with just shovels and you know your back. Okay, mm-hmm. 
So um, the, the, the development, you know, the construction of sustainable systems, I think is about using these, you know, the tools and technology and energy resources available to us today, here and now, to, to build, to regenerate the health of systems here and now that will require far less maintenance into the future. So to use industrial technology to build ecologically regenerative systems that aren't going to require industrial tools for maintenance and harvest into the future. That's how I think of that. That's kind of, I don't know if that gets at your question, you know, very, very well, but that's kind of how I think of, you know, using tools and technology in the development of a sustainable or especially in this case, a regenerative system getting at the, at, at the first two ethics. But then about how to, you know, and then cycling nutrients in a system, you know, that's, that's, that's a thing. I don't know if that's what you wanted to discuss, the cycling well, of nutrients. Or Yeah, we can talk, talk about that. But I just want to just back up to the com- your comment about using what we have here. Yeah. So kind of the approach, because I've heard in travels and readings kind of different approaches that if you're going to set up one of these systems, do you need to get yourself a draft horse and some oxen to be able to haul stuff around with your shovel in your back? Or mm. are sometimes the industrial technique, techniques to use where – Maybe an excavator comes in to create the swales yeah. or, or set up the landscape so you can move forward with your design, especially if you're in limited property that you own or are working with. Yeah. I mean, if it's my back, I'm going to rent an excavator. Okay. You know, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, um, you know, I'm not an ideological purist, I guess, mm-hmm. in, in that sense. And I don't really think many people, maybe many permaculture designers are, you know, it's, 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 you know, the thing that I appreciate about... Uh, the permaculture movement, and certainly, uh, like Lisa mentioned, you know, the movement that we have here in in New England is is you know we are we're critical thinkers. You know, we're, we're you know we're a pile of critical thinkers, and we're not terribly dogmatic. Many of us, mm-hmm. you know, most of us, you know, thankfully here here in 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 the Northeast, we're not terribly dogmatic about how we go about how we go about the approach of the development of these systems. So these systems are designed in in a in a thoughtful, careful way and then and then how you go about installing them in in a in a phased project-based way that's also thoughtful. And you know, it depends on the client, you know, mm-hmm. it it depends on the goals, but like you said, if 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 a project requires earthworks, say, for passive water catchment, um at one scale, it's perfectly appropriate to do that with the pickaxe. Mm-hmm. But at another scale, you're not going to be moving tons and tons of earth with shovels and wheelbarrows. You know, <laughs> you're going to go and hire the equipment operator or go rent a machine to do it mm-hmm. because that's just, you know, we all have limited time and and and, and resources. You got to get a way that cost benefit analysis. Okay, it might cost more. To rent an excavator, but you're going to get the job done a lot sooner as opposed Definitely. to, you know, organizing, you know, 20 of your friends to come over and schlep earth with shovels and a wheelbarrow, you know, and you might burn up your social capital in the process of doing that too. So um, I, I think um, – Right, you know, I mean, let's 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 use what we have here. You know, I'm I'm I've come around even, you know, like I said in the beginning, I I, I got here because of the anti globalization movement, and 
even in a way with that, I've kind of come around a little bit, you know, in, you know, and maybe we'll talk about this later, the, the, the design of cool temperate agro ecosystems, okay, forest gardens and, and, and these perennial food producing forest systems. You know, I'm, I'm coming around to this, to this notion of let's use global, if we're going to use industrial technology to move earth, mm-hmm. okay, let's open it up. You know, what else is available to our what's what also is available to us? And, and so with cool, the development or the design of cool, temperate, agriculturally productive ecosystems, let's use the plants that are that are at this cool, temperate band around the whole uh, the whole earth. Mm-hmm. OK, and, mm-hmm. and use plants that are um, available to us using the tools of globalization, okay? Because there's some very interesting plant breeding work that's been done in Europe and Russia and Northern Asia that it might behoove us to look at some of those and use, and, and, you know, and use some of those interesting plants for our benefit and for the next seven generations, for the benefit of the next seven generations. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, Lisa, did you want to add something there? Yeah, I do. I, I want to just highlight something I'm hearing from Jesse, which is that if we choose to use, um, you know, the tools and resources of, you know, that are finite, if we choose to use diesel, fossil fuels, tractors made in factories, you know, I'm not, this is not a judgmental thing. People are going to make the decisions they need to make and, you know, support their ability to do what they need to do. Absolutely. But I'm really appreciating the fact that Jesse is alluding to the fact that how do we design systems so that we prioritize the use of finite resources and industrial systems in order to not need them in the future, right? Mm -hmm. So we're talking about creating systems um, so that we don't have to in the future, you know, use what we have today. We're in this amazing watershed moment where we have access to ancient sunlight in the form of fossil fuels. Um, If you're going to use some of that, you know, use a liter of diesel, to do the work that, you know, will literally last hundreds of years if you if you act strategically. Um, and so, but when we talk about creating resilience, we want to build systems that don't require constant inputs of faraway or finite resources in order to continue to function and feed us. And just close, I want to close that thought by saying, um, when I think about the word sustainable, which I try to stay away from unless I'm really defining what I mean, mm-hmm. because it's a bit of an overused Agreed. word at this point. Um, but when I think about it for real, you know, what comes to mind, honestly, is something that Russell used to talk about, you know, Russell Libby. And he would say, he would talk about the fact that, you know, how do we create a food system? And I would expand that to say, how do we create ecosystems, and including humans? that allow us as a species, as a keystone species, to continue to live here indefinitely. You know, what does a system look like that would allow us to be here indefinitely? And, um, you know, barring the odd asteroid strike or something, uh, I really think that's kind of a radical question to ask because it's the absolute opposite of a lot of the decision-making that we do right now as a culture. So permaculture design sort of brings that back in and says, you know, you get one shot to be a good ancestor. Yep. What are you going to do now? Even if it's experimental, even if you don't have all the answers, how do we create and try to create an experiment with systems that let us um, be here perhaps indefinitely? 
And it seems like utilizing those resources that we have now so we can set that up and, and move forward. Right. Yeah. And Jesse. Yeah. So, so Lisa mentioned uh, keystone species. Uh, you know, how I – humans are a keystone species. How I put it is humans are a keystone species whether we choose to accept that responsibility or not. Mm-hmm. Okay. A keystone species, they affect – everybody else around them. They shape the direction of whole ecosystems, okay? So maybe we go and uh, pave a swamp to put in a Walmart, and the swamp was an ecosystem before, and the Walmart parking lot is an ecosystem after. They're both ecosystems. One is more ecologically healthy than the other, and and, and I'll let you decide which one that is. Um, So the thing about, you know, how one of the things I appreciate permaculture as a design system, right, in, in this articulation of goals and in this stewardship of land in figurative and literal sense where you're stewarding the life back into the soil right around you, this pr- it's a process. It's a process for us remembering what it means to be a keystone species, mm-hmm. right? And, 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 and really um, getting to the, to the permaculture as permanent culture or, or, or regenerative culture, ecological culture. It, it, it helps us to, to remember what it might be like to be aboriginal to a place or to be native to a place, to be indigenous to a place as a keystone species, as, you know, we can look to contemporary living examples of indigenous aboriginal cultures and, and, and the wisdom that they articulate in their cultural forms and the way they manage their landscapes and the way they manage their economies. I, I think permaculture is a way for us to remember how to do that, I think, mm-hmm. you know, to remember how to be a keystone species and how to be good ancestors, like what Lisa said. And we haven't been separate for all that time, much time, no, right? No, no. We're, we're still part right. of everything. Yeah. Okay. Um, at this point, I just want to take another minute to remind listeners that uh, you are tuned in to WERU, and this is Common Ground Radio in our food and farming discussions. And this week we are talking about permaculture as a design system and creative approach to building resiliency. And guests today with me are Jesse Watson from Midcoast Permaculture and the Midcoast Permaculture Network here in the studio. And on the phone, we have Lisa Fernandez, the director of the Resilience Hub and organizer for the Portland, Maine Permaculture Group. And also like to remind listeners that this is a pre-recorded show, so we are not taking phone calls at this time. Um, so as we move, move forward here and thinking we've discussed some goals and ethics, and I think as we kind of look to, to move into the actual implementation stage in some of these design projects and processes that there are also these design principles that are used in terms of moving forward. And um, I know that there's about a dozen of them or so, and I'm not looking to really discuss each one in depth in the interest of, of time here today. But just thinking about moving into the kind of design principles and, um, and Lisa, would you like to touch on kind of the implementation phase and and how you how to utilize some of these principles and, and how you view those? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, you know, like Jesse said, every single permaculture site is different. There's no cookie-cutter solutions. But um, usually, you know, 80% or more of permaculture is in, is in observation. Uh, before we ever, you know, do any little bit of anything, we're sort of becoming students of place. And it's especially great to start doing permaculture 
using permaculture as a as an approach in a place where the humans are already in in relationship to that place even the best envisioned design on paper changes when you actually start implementing and installing parts of a permaculture system um, especially because you you're approaching the land you're you're a part of the place with with a great deal of humility and curiosity rather than the confidence of being the expert designer um, one thing that that permaculture really tries to to instill at least the flavor that we work with here is this idea that you know ultimately the ecosystems themselves the land the plants the, the other beings um, have way more to teach us than we have to impose on it our our will as it were uh, and so we want to really even as we implement things and 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 use some of the techniques that are commonly associated with permaculture we're doing that in a way where we're observing you know what works in nature what's already happening what are the patterns of the ecosystems around me how can i choose plants that are that are respectful of the patterns of plants that are already here um, whether choosing native species or species that that work very similarly um, or looking at how nature builds soil generally not through a lot of tillage or disruption um, so we try to mimic that pattern um, but there's a whole bunch of ways that we implement a design um, and the design itself is based on, on these on these principles, but then when we get out onto the land and working with buildings and energy and water and growing systems, we're, we're, we're also honoring those design principles. And I'll just mention one of my favorite ones that you'll hear a lot of us talk about, which is this idea of stacking functions. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that I was taught uh, about that principle, and it just makes a lot of sense to me, is that every design element should serve at least three functions in a permaculture system. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, more functions the better, but at least three functions. So, for example, uh, on the south side of my house, uh, we we have a deck. There's quite a slope, so a deck creates this transition. But growing up and over the deck are four grapevines. Uh, that are conquered crosses, so they have some native genetics in there. And if I think about the functions now, those grapevines climbing up 20 feet and then heading 24 feet uh, horizontally over the top of the deck or the house, the grapevine provides food because I'm harvesting, you know, 80 pounds of grapes per year for juice and jelly. Um, It provides shade on the deck, so in the hot summer it feels 5 to 10 degrees cooler under there because of evaporative cooling. Um, It creates habitat. We usually have at least a couple of birds that build their nests um, and have stopping places in in the grapevines. Mm -hmm. We we leave a a large amount of fruit on the vine to dry out, which is winter fodder for the birds. That's another function. Because it's the south side of the house where the sun tends to beat in on a warm summer day, and now it cannot... Um, it's creating a climate buffer for the house itself on on that side where the heat typically would be beating down on the house. It's also beautiful, so we can never discount beauty as a function. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we prune in late winter, early spring, those prunings are propagated into grapevine potted grapevines that we sell and barter. So 
that's an additional function. So in that case, I'm exceeding the stacking function. But that's just one example of you have another pretty, design principle. You have them pretty stacked up pretty high there, it seems yeah. like. Yeah, I, I, I like lost right. count, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're teetering at this point. Yeah, so. yeah. Okay. Um, well, Jesse, did you want to speak to a specific principle or? Yeah, I guess I guess two that I um, I'm thinking about right now. Uh, Lisa, Lisa mentioned a little bit. Uh, just this this concept, this principle of observation. You know, really beginning an observation. You know, I'll tell people that observation really goes hand in hand with goal setting. You know, begin thinking about what kinds of goals you might. Um, choose in how you might manage your landscape and, and the ecosystem around you, um, but also observe what's there and mm-hmm. what's working and, and ob- observe the energy flows that are moving through your, your system through all four seasons. Um, and like Lisa said, you know, ob- observing, observing nature with this attitude of humility to, to learn about that's where we go to learn about resilient patterns. You know, uh, resilient patterns evolve uh, in nature, and really, our our job is to you know reacquaint ourselves with these patterns of resilience as they're expressed uh, in 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 nature. You know, so so coming, you know, this, in in permaculture we have this zone concept, and and that's sort of why we maintain. A, a wilderness or or some some ecological reference because that is the place where we go to learn as students with humility to observe the resilient patterns as they're expressed in the ecosystems around us. Um, another principle that I that I just want to mention is okay. I talked about using earth moving equipment earlier. Okay, but <laughs> that you know when I so in my I live on a slope. Uh, and, and I used an excavator to build terraces on, on, at my place. And I didn't jump right into an excavator, okay? Mm-hmm. The, the principle that, that I began working with was using small and slow solutions. Um, so I didn't jump right into an ex- excavator. Like I said, I started with swales, okay, mm-hmm. that, that were small. They were hand dug, okay? I, I did organize a crew of my buddies, and, and we all showed up with shovels and pickaxes and, and, and dug these swales on contour. Uh, and, and it's a passive uh, rainwater uh, catchment uh, technique. Mm-hmm. And um, I observed the swales for a year or two, and I observed that I really liked walking on that level contour line because that was the only place on my landscape that was actually level anymore. Mm-hmm. Okay, it, The rest of it is, is sloped, and it wasn't a steep slope, but it was enough to, to be a little bit of a nuisance. So then I decided after I observed and got some feedback from the system, you know, that, that the swales did not do undue damage or anything to, to affecting the rest of the landscape down below. Then I rented the excavator and, and, and moved a lot of earth to, to tear us off the system. So, you know, there's, there's a pile of techniques we could talk about, uh, anyways to, you know, relative placement of elements. This is another principle that, that, that really, I think, uh, provides an idea provides, you know, demonstrates what the, the power of, uh, of permaculture design is, is, is this relative placement of elements. Like Lisa said, she got a, 
grapevine on the south, south side of her house. The relative placement of the grapevine on the south side of her house provides shade and a climate buffer to the inside of her house. So it's so part of it, you know, stacking functions is, is one design principle and the relative placement of elements in the landscape to one another is, is, is another important principle because, you know, while on the one hand, with the design of ecosystems, you do want biodiversity, but you don't, you know, resilient ecosystems, it's not about just sheer numbers of species in a system. This characteristic of resilience is enunciated really by the relationships that develop between elements in that system, not sheer numbers of biodiversity, okay? So it's not just sort of flotsam and jetsam scattered about a place because we need biodiversity. No, it's 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 really about cultivating relationships between elements. And that's really what, uh, you know, in, in the observation of nature, that's what results in this characteristic of this quality of resilience. Okay. And um, Lisa, something that we had talked in the past about, I think what we've gone through kind of the stacking functions and the relevant placement and uh, how they're tied together, like Jesse just mentioned. But we had talked in the past about these scales of permanence and things that we can influence and cannot influence and kind of that spectrum in between. Yeah, yeah. There's really there's, there's several different ways to do sort of analysis and sort of assessment of site conditions when you're, when you're doing permaculture design. You know, it, and none of this design process is, is linear. It's, it can be quite cyclical, so you're circling back um, to really understand your landscape as, as well as you can before you undertake changes. But um, in addition to looking at some of these design principles and designing by zones and sun sectors and wind sectors and some of these other pieces, um, one of the design tools we have is the ability to sort of do analysis by scale of permanence. And that really came out of the work of some Australian folks, particularly P.A. Yeomans in the 1950s and 60s in Australia. And, you know, he kind of came from a, a mining a, a mining background, to be honest. And But he was looking at how to, to heal and repair seriously damaged soils. And, you know, at what scale does it make sense for us as humans to intervene in a, in a degraded system to try to bring it back to health. And he was looking at scale of permanence um, sort of along the lines of, you know, what are the levels or aspects of a, of a landscape or, or of some land that we, we can actually influence with greater or lesser ease? At one end of the spectrum, the least able for us to, to influence as individuals, like say on a farm or a home property, would be you know, the overall climate, you know, what, what USDA growing zone are you in? Um, what are your max and min temperatures in any given year? Some of those things are really just beyond the scope of, of individuals to change or as designers to influence. Um, and you kind of move through a scale of, you know, eight to 10 different levels, depending on which version of this you're, you're working with. Um, you know, the sun and the wind, obviously, are going to be to some degree, uh, you know, immutable. And, but then we work right through, you know, what are, what are, what is the slope? We could change that, but with lots of inputs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we're looking at what's the vegetation, what's the soil, what's the infrastructure that's already in place. And we're, and, and some of those we can quite easily influence and do repair work 
and create regenerative systems. Um, when people tell me they have, you know, they have no place to garden, they have nothing but clay and ledge and bad soil and shade, I get very excited <laughs> because on the scale of permanence, I, I can work with that. You know, we can totally work with that yeah. and and work with it, design with it. Um, do a little bit of Aikido on whatever energies are passing through the place to kind of move them in the direction of the goals and the ethics of permaculture to to help meet the needs. There's only been one instance where for site conditions and scales of permanence, I've actually turned down a design job and it was, you know, a north facing slope, uh, you know, with, 80-foot-tall conifers all around, even uh, even outside the property, beyond the control of the owners, um, blocking all sun whatsoever, because the goals of, of this family were to produce annual vegetables. <laughs> now, if they had said their goals were to produce mushrooms right. or something else, we could have worked. It might have been with... more possible. Yeah, yeah. Sled, <laughs> a sled run in July. Yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> so, well... Um... So, yeah, that's just another... You know, analysis technique is, is scales are permanent. Yeah. Um, well, we're getting towards the end of the show here, so I just wanted to give listeners um, the opportunity or the ability to maybe get in touch with you folks if they had for further questions or looking to kind of find some of your services. Jesse, are you available? Sure. Sure. Uh, they can. They can find. Uh, we're teaching a course this summer. Lisa and I are teaching a course hosted at at Mofka that starts uh, next month. Um, also in July, July four, five, and six is the annual Northeast Permaculture Convergence. It's, uh, Maine is the host this year. It's also going to be at, at MOFCA. Um, Lisa can talk more about that and give the website, my own website. If folks want to get in, in touch with me, you can find my email through the website, midcoastpermaculture.com. Okay. And Lisa, for contact with you. Best way for people to find out what we're up to is to use the internet and go to Portland, Maine Permaculture, uh, all one word, portlandmainepermaculture.com, and people can add their, their name to that mailing list to find out about all the events that are happening, including the 2014 Northeast Permaculture Convergence, which oh. will be you know, a great event in July. Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, We're coming to the end of the show. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to Common Ground Radio. And thank you, Jesse Watson and Lisa Fernandez, for being here today. Uh, I am your host, CJ Walk, and I'd like to encourage you to listen to future editions of Common Ground Radio, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association, which can be heard at 10 a.m. on the first Friday of every month. And only here on your community radio station, WERU-FM.